0: Hello, and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. My name is Manish, and today we are going to finish up what we started last week. Joined, as always, for the financial review by Nick Gastovich, a.k.a. Investments.
1: Manish, back-to-back, two in a row, let's go.
0: (laughs) There you go. There you go. So look, just to kick it off, actually, I want to... Um, propose a question to you, Nick, that was uh, sent in to us by a longtime listener. um somebody who really has a uh, deep appreciation for cannabis is is deeply invested um, and follows a lot of the news. And just to summarize what what he's asking here, um he's looking at the landscape of where we are. um and and so we'll think of this in the context with and without safe banking. Who are going to be the next generation of investors? who help bring some life back to these cannabis stocks. And just to, to kind of quickly give some context to what this individual is asking, he's basically saying, look, like, you know, if you listen to people on Twitter, it's like there's this giant dam, you know, um, holding back uh, a flood of capital. And once that dam starts to break, it's just going to come oozing and gushing in. Um, but he's not so sure, right? A lot of the Larger uh, money managers out there, you know, maybe they know of cannabis, but it's not super on their radar. And it's not, certainly not something they're rushing to get into. Um, and some people who did rush and get into it the first time around with Canada or even the u s um, have been badly burnt. So, you know, as we sit here and talk about these big five companies and who we like the most and you know, what's the most attractive, um, the question that's on this individual's mind is, okay, all of that's well and good, but let's say, that we even get safe banking, you know, in, in this uh, lame duck session, who's going to actually come in? Where is this money going to come from um, to actually propel cannabis to the next, you know, wave of, of uh, bull market?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question and uh, certainly a, a topic of discussion, uh, especially with all the recent safe talks. Um, And and like you said, like definitely undeniable, like if you look at institutional ownership amongst any of these big five names, which, you know, on on paper should be the, uh, you know, are the largest names in the business and should be the most institutionally attractive and, you know, most are below one to 2% institutional ownership. So there's there's no doubt that there is uh, a lack of institutional money in the space currently. Um, where where that eventually evolves to is, is certainly kind of uh the next discussion to have and you know whether safe is that big stepping stone to, right. to make the next uh generation of, uh, of money coming into the space actually comfortable and in, in, investing um and you know I do think a larger portion of that remains to be seen like it's it's hard to see uh you know given we can't even get it across across the board the the exact ramifications of of safe just because you know there isn't at least currently direct uplisting language involved. There's yep. you know the discussion of whether that uh, leads to renewed FinCEN guidance and whether that gets the the exchanges com- comfortable to invest. Um, but certainly, uh, it would be you know what I think of more of kind of a stair step function of you know you, you do get perhaps like some level of new private equity money or or, or funds in the space who are a little bit more nimble upon safe passing and. You know, I do think there's a good, you know, good proof of that just in the most recent, like in previous runs that we've seen in the Canada space, like going back to um, 2021 when we, when we kind of peaked across the industry. Mm-hmm. A, a huge portion of that was driven by new names coming into the space. Uh, you know, Dems had just taken uh, all three uh, portions of the of the government uh, yep. after the 2020 election, and and there was no doubt new institutional money coming in. And then, you know, I think when we get when we've had uh you know some smaller runs uh, during the time uh you know whether it was kind of like the you know nancy mace introducing her bill or biden announcing the rescheduling or more recently with these safe discussions every single time you do st- see those kind of new mso in, in, in msos inflows which mm-hmm. i
0: think
1: usually kind of a good reflection of new money coming into the space uh,
0: yeah so so let me just let's break that apart a little bit right and I think we use this word institutional as a broad brush but uh there's a lot of different kinds of groups we might consider institutional money or, or non-retail money essentially and look part of the problem is the fact that we have very low liquidity and we have done a tremendous amount of m a in stock so when we talk about you know as we're closing, you know, out the analysis here, we talk about GTI and Verano. One of the things that's been so hard on Verano for, you know, essentially like a year now has been the fact that there's a tremendous amount of M&A done in stock. And I think you're going to see cumulative effects, right? I think I would agree with you that there's probably not many money managers clamoring today to get into cannabis, you know, probably aren't sitting there with their, you know, biting their nails saying, you know, if safe passes, I'm going to be the first one to buy it. I think that when you think about money managers, I mean, their their interests um, in terms of their incentives, you know, they want to get as much AUM as possible and they, want, they don't want to do anything stupid that their clients fire them. So kind of going back to the conversation I had with Seishu about, um, you know, quantitative easing and tightening in bull markets, It's I think things start kind of slowly and people start making money and things start going the right way. And then it incentivizes uh, some of the bigger fish to get involved, which is which is more or less what happened with crypto. And it's probably not the best comparison. We <laughs> probably don't want to conflate those two. But, yeah. but um, when you think about cannabis, one of the things that happens and one of the reasons we see such violent rallies in our industry is that people get bullish and bearish at the same time. So when people get scared, then they start dumping these stocks and there's no buyers to pick them up, right? And they start falling really rapidly. Then the opposite happens. When people see a rosier outlook and the stocks start rallying, then people ease off the selling pressure. They probably, they see the stocks kind of rip. Maybe they sell into it, but as they rip and rip, they feel kind of stupid for the amount that they sold. So part of the problem gets solved with human psychology and that if people are optimistic about the future again, instead of pessimistic, then you you lose some of the selling pressure. And then that optimism also brings brings in new capital flows to MSOS. And where is that money coming from? I really have no idea. You know, when you see MSOF, MSOS have, you know, a 20, 50 million dollar um uh, volume day, where is all that buying coming from? I really don't have a good sense of that, right? But um, it could be that it's institutions. It could be that we're talking about hedge funds and fast money, it could be that we're talking about more like private equity trying to do things like levered buyouts. I think that's Further down the line, by the way, um, and then the ultimate goal is, you know, once these companies are uplisted and they're normalized, they will get included in these passive indices, right? Like a Russell two thousand or something like that, depending on their size. Um, and then that's the real beauty because then you start getting passive inflows. Where you know when you get started adding in these indices, there's forced buying that happens, um, and I think that has a tremendous effect. So I would agree that it's it's really hard to point out exactly who's going to be. You know the knight in shining armor who starts buying these stocks, Uh, but I would submit to you that we've priced in a tremendous amount of negativity. Uh, It could get more negative for sure if Safe doesn't pass. But uh, if we get some positives, and that could be Safe, that could be you know a state like Pennsylvania flipping over. That could be you know even just companies slowing down and stopping to issue new shares for M and A. Some of these things can just help ease off the selling pressure, which could have a very significant impact. Uh, once things start heading in the right direction.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's perfectly said. Yeah, I mean, we're starting from such a, both like a low base of institutional ownership and such a low level of volumes that like any level of stability and uh, underlying support will will help the the whole industry you know significantly.
0: And things like, by the way, the, the Circle K deal, I mean, that I think does a tremendous amount to bring eyeballs and interest to the space. Now, ultimately it's somewhat short-lived you know, it's, it's an announcement, it comes and it goes, but, uh, I think those are very positive signs. And there was, um, another one that somebody sent to me and, and I have to give, uh, credit to a gentleman named, uh, I think puff daddy jr. On Twitter. Um, not, not puff, not to be confused with puff daddy senior who's buying the assets, but, but this guy dug up a story that, um, was, was pretty ignored, uh, about a, Uh, a gas station chain on the West coast. Uh, I think it was like Oregon and um, you know, uh, Washington state and and a couple places like that, but they are also doing a similar model. um, Actually a little more even hands-on where I think they are uh, subleasing the space to a Canadian company who's going to run operations. Uh, But, but just showing you, you know, there, there is interest um, in other industries to bring cannabis in, in some form or fashion to help drive, revenue and margin and, and gas station sales and narrative. Uh, so I think that's another big piece that that was very helpful in the Canadian landscape. When when Constellation and Altria and the strategic started jumping in, um, that was tremendously powerful uh, for, for narrative and share prices. So once you get some of that narrative going in the right direction and people certainly start making money, then they start you know, going to their investment advisors and saying, "Hey, why are we not making some of that money? Right? Why are we not participating in that?" And then the incentives for the investment advisor are to find a way, um, again, to keep their clients and keep their AUM high. So they'll find some mechanism of investing in that to keep their clients happy. So that that's how I think about those kind of things.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that kind of speaks to the ultimate thesis behind investing in Canvas is that like even though. You know the the road to to get there is going to be choppy and and finding companies that survive along the way is like certainly the the process we're involved in now but there's there so many steps that we still have to take toward normalization uh, of this industry and it's you know it's place especially here here in the us just to be considered uh like its counterpart where you know we're not paying 280 taxes and there's no, you know, not everyone's paying cash in the store and just all these kind of crazy, archaic things that the industry has to deal with is, you know, that institutional money coming in. I mean, so such a long laundry list of developments that we still have ahead of us. um, That kind of is like the true support behind, I I think, the cannabis long-term investing thesis.
0: And one of the things to think about, too, is that Despite all the craziness and all we've been through, um, you know, I would agree that when you look at the big five, it's hard to look at these and say, hey, these are the fang of of cannabis. Sure, they are today, but the markets that we're heading into over 10 years are, are going to be very different from where we are today. And you think about things like interstate commerce and normalization, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the, the problems that we had, if you rewind, you know, one to two years, is that we were... Um, putting multiples on sort of inflated margins. So we were doing, you know, 30 to 40% EBITDA margins and then we were putting high growth multiples on them, right, 15 or 20 times. And that was that made sense at the time because the rest of the market was trading at many times those multiples and we were seeing truly sustained uh profit with growth, right? So that made total sense. Well, now, you know, the earnings have been beaten up. Um so the the earnings figure have have come down, and then the multiple we're using, you know, we're talking about as we talk about here today, seven, eight, ten times um, EBITDA multiples looking forward, you know, a year, right? So and the margins are now down to I don't know, call it twenty to thirty percent. That seems like it's a lot more sustainable long term. Like even if let's say the margin normalizes around twenty. You know, once you open up all the markets and you you don't have 280 and you have interstate commerce and et cetera, et cetera, it's probably reasonable to get something in the realm of 20 percent, and it's from a CPG company um, compared to getting 40 percent. Right? That was when we were um, probably too optimistic on the staying power of these companies. So what that means is that today, when you're buying a company at you know two billion or three billion dollar valuation. A lot of things can happen, um, you know. A lot of things can change, but long term, you know, if they if they settle out around that margin, uh, it it could be okay, right? Remember that the majority of the U.S. still needs to be opened up for recreational sales, right? Places like New York or Pennsylvania or Texas or Florida, um, etc. There's still a lot of uh, there's still a lot of history to be written here on how this industry is going to look long term right? So uh, I, I think don't be, don't think that you're buying these things for 10 years, because things will change. But I also wouldn't be so sure that these are all going to be zeros over 10 years as well, right? A lot remains TBD. And if, if anything, we see how slow it is to make real federal change.
1: Yeah, I think that's a perfect summary.
0: Okay, so going on to, you know, the the companies that uh, I think we we've ended up debating for the last few um, episodes and quarters when we do these reviews you know we're left with GTI and Verano and I guess I would say over the last few months um, I think I think a lot of developments have happened in these two companies um, certainly you know it's been very painful to be a shareholder of either company um, but I think if you if you kind of look at where we are today going to this idea of, of these companies being beaten up um, I think certainly we're we're probably way lower than either of us thought would be reasonable, you know, six or 12 months ago.
1: Yeah. 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 Definitely. Like, you know, there, there's been specific challenges with each company, but you know, I think overall we've kind of landed on our discussion between these two, mostly just cause like, I think they've had the best combination of, you know, maintaining a reasonable valuation, but also, also having a, a fairly optimized footprint, you know, exposure to all the key markets um, as well as, you know, not, Uh, kind of overdeveloping into uh, more, more challenging markets. So like, I think we've assumed that results would have been, would have been stronger, but you know, with the challenges to the industry as a whole, like it, uh, all these names tend to move together at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, look, there's definitely, and I think also it's hard to differentiate yourself. I mean, at the end of the day, you're, you can only be in so many States you can only be, you know, you have license caps in, in almost every state. So it's not like there is, there's very few things that really make you unique um, in this industry. And look, kudos to GTI because they have some of those things, right? They are the only MSO we're talking about with a presence in Rhode Island. Um, they're one of the few, both these companies are, are going to do well in Connecticut. Um, and yet, you know, GTI has Virginia, right? So I think what's interesting to look at GTI's footprint, um, they've done a phenomenal job They've executed the limited license playbook to a T and they continue to quietly do deals. Um, we, you know, I don't think we've seen many recently, but I think Rhode Island was a great pickup. Um, you know, Connecticut's finally going to pay dividends. And uh, I think, uh, you know, what they did with Leafline in, in, um oh, sorry, Leafline was Minnesota. So, so you've got, you know, so you're looking at Minnesota, Virginia. Um, if you look forward to, you know, maybe late 23 or 24, and uh, coming into the new year, you know, Connecticut, Rhode Island. So uh, I think that they deserve a, a big round of applause for that because it's very easy to get swept away by, you know, the the new greatest and latest thing in this industry. Um, and they have really avoided that. And I think that has been to the benefit of shareholders.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely, especially when you run through the states like that in terms of both, uh, you know. States that are going to turn online in in the short term, you know, you covered it with Rhode Island and Connecticut, and then you know New York is obviously uh, an asterisk, like we discussed earlier. But that could be a potential driver. They they do have New Jersey, where you know they didn't have the largest share outs out of the gate, but have a, you know a pretty good position there. Still have one more store to turn online. We'll see if uh, they're still waiting to see if they can get the local municipality to agree to adult use, um, but obviously could increase their wholesale share there. Uh, And And that's
0: and sorry, that's the monster store. Paramus is the that's the crown jewel for them. Uh, The the nearest store is uh, Ascends Rochelle Park, and that's a store doing massive numbers. So um, they've definitely had their challenges of of getting that New Jersey store online. But um, when they get it, probably I think they'll get it. But when they get it, that would be massive upside for them.
1: Yep. Yep. No doubt. And then, you know, we, we discussed Maryland perhaps turning on this year as well. That'll be material. And then uh, looking out slightly, everything we kind of discussed as uh, opportunities for, you know, in our, in our previous discussion with, uh, you know, Cresco and Truly and Curaleaf, they, you know, they have Minnesota, which perhaps will turn adult use. They have Pennsylvania, a large presence there, which, you know, might be a 24 story for adult use. Um, Florida, which, you know, I think they've been lacking all this time is a state where they can seriously make up ground and obviously announce the the Circle K deal. So like, we'll see how that roll out, you know, they're doing the test run with 10 stores. That'll be a, an interesting dynamic. They have, you know, they're uh, a pretty large grow facility finally coming online in, in the state. And, you know, that'll coincide with those Circle K stores. And, you know, I think they'll open up some of their own stores as well. And Uh, You know, that that should prove to be pretty good timing should the 2024 ballot measure prove prove successful. Um, So, yeah, like you said, definitely the the footprint is there to at least, uh, you know, sustain decent growth ahead. Uh, You know, even even looking at Ohio where they have a a decent position like that might be a future uh, adult use market. So, yeah, uh, you know, I think they've been very methodical about developing that that state portfolio and having. Uh, you know, all those opportunities that can help uh, offset some of the price compression we're seeing across the board.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about Florida. Cause I think that's a really interesting point of differentiation between these companies, right? So Verano, the, the current version of Verano going public was really created through merging, you know, the, the legacy Verano with Altmed and Altmed was the second biggest operator in Florida. Um, I think, uh, a crown jewel asset, and it also had a presence in Arizona. So putting those companies together um, was, was really, I think, a good transaction. And now if you look at Verano, they opened 11 AltMed stores in Q3. I mean, massive, massive numbers. Uh, also interesting to see Florida open, sorry, uh, Truly opened, I think, five uh, stores in Florida in Q3. So I don't know what's going on with Q3. I don't know what the magic was there. Um, but you know, a lot of, a lot of doors opening. And so, so Altmet obviously was, was a money printing machine, um, while prices, you know, before prices compressed GTI really, I think just going back to that limited license playbook that you look at Florida and you go, well, there's no license cap on stores. Uh, There used to be, but it it moved and moved and then it finally got removed. And I think they said, well, we're going to be cautious on that. We're not going to dedicate too much money you know, they had this, this build out in Ocala and it seems like it's been going on forever. And I think it's finally finishing um, at, the, at the end of this year. So really interesting to see their capital allocation decision there. And look, sure enough, over time, the prices did collapse. So it, it ended up looking really smart on their part. And because of that, now they're able to, I think, truly play this game of 3D chess where they go, okay, maybe we don't need you know, 2,500 square foot dispensaries at Main and Main, right? Maybe the way we're going to catch up is with these little 500, 800 square foot, you know, Rise Express stores attached to a Circle K, where, you know, somebody buying gas just, you know, comes by and and picks up, you know, a couple eighths for 15, 20 bucks an eighth, right? So the idea of normalization of cannabis, well, there it is right there, right? Somebody, somebody doing the you know, the whole idea of gas and grass, like a lot more like somebody might pick up a bottle of wine, you know, on their way home. Um, And you could see that making sense in a medical market, where prices have come down, you want to keep your operating expenses low, you can see that making sense in a recreational market, where there's going to be a lot of ground to cover in Florida. And if people start thinking that, hey, you can grab cannabis at a Circle K. um, There's a lot of I think they said they have 600 locations in Florida alone, um, Circle K does that you know, not all of them would would fit necessarily, but that's a lot of runway to add on you know 20, 30, 40 of those Rise Express stores. So low capex, um, you're getting the benefit of of backpacking or uh, piggybacking off Circle K. and there's this tremendous capital markets benefit of showing people, look, we know how to attract institutional capital. We know how to attract institutional partners. Um, I think that gives people the warm and fuzzies. And so it's things like that. That make me go, wow, you know, GTI is really doing some cool stuff. And I think, you know, we as investors need to put a premium on these kind of actions.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously like part of that piggybacking also comes with the fact that, you know, Circle K is obviously choosing gas station locations like very strategically. I mean, you're always gonna have gas stations like at high traffic areas that are convenient for people and Having that inroad where you don't have to, you know, worry about, uh, you know, licensing or or local approval or anything like that, uh, you kind of, like you said, pay back off of the work that Circle K has already done in terms of identifying prime locations. Totally. Uh, and, and now you can have uh, just convenient stores located in those areas. And uh, you know, even that initial press release they gave off, like I think this is you know, certainly more of a story down the line, but in, in kind of going along with that normalization discussion we, we discussed is like, if, you know, the Florida model proves out uh, strong, it obviously creates an avenue for uh, perhaps Rise Express stores in, uh, in other states and across the country down the line, uh, you know, should, should that prove material.
0: Yeah. I mean, granted, this model makes total sense in Florida where you have no license cap on retail. So, you know, open up Ten rise stores, to, you know, rise express stores with Circle K. Ah, it doesn't work out. Ah, whatever. Okay, I've got ten okay stores, right? Um, you certainly would never do this in Illinois because you know each each one of your ten is so valuable that uh, you know you don't you don't want to constrict yourself to a, a little space, right? So, um, really depends, I guess, on on how this shakes out uh, in a market where there's no license caps, like in Ontario, for example. Um, this probably makes way more sense, but just a you know, I think this is what makes GTI such a leader in the industry, right? But before, um, you know, our, our kind of downturn in equity values, they were really good at bringing in institutional partner, institutional capital, institutional lenders, what have you. And, and um, I think that was really a, a point, you know, in their favor. And um, I, I think the next wave will be more than just capital. I think it will also be about uh, institutional support. Right, not not only uh, like more strategic as opposed to just financial.
1: Yeah, yeah, perfectly said.
0: Uh, Nick, do you want to run through? Let's let's start, maybe start by running through the numbers for GTI.
1: Sure. Um, you know, so uh, GTI obviously had that that New Jersey exposure, which was mm-hmm. definitely like, key for them because you know they did have exposure to uh, you know states with notable price compression, like like Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and, and Nevada, especially where where GTI did have. Uh, fairly large footprints, um, but they luckily were able to, you know, offset some of that with with New Jersey and you know concentrations in Illinois and, and kind of like the the sound footprint like we described. So, mm-hmm. uh, looking at top line revenue, two forty three in Q one, two fifty four in Q two, and then two sixty in in Q three. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so nice, nice steady growth there. Um, didn't turn too many new assets online. Like obviously, did open those. Uh, have those uh, adult use conversions in New Jersey mm-hmm. uh, opened up a couple stores in Minnesota they're, they're at six today they can go up to eight so so a little bit more to go mm-hmm. and that and then they had a few store openings in uh, Virginia as well they're at I think four today and they can go to go to six um, so then looking at uh, adjusted EBITDA 67 million in q1, 79 million in Q2 and then 80. 4.5 million in Q3. Uh, so from a margin perspective, that's 28% Q1, 31% Q2, and then uh, let's see, 32. Point, just slightly higher, 32.4% in Q3. Um, and not too many adjustments to that figure. 8 million in share-based compensation, and only 3.3 million in one-time adjustments. So uh, that, that adjusted even a figure like is actually pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, gross margin, fifty-one uh, percent Q1, forty-nine point five percent Q2, and then fifty percent Q3. So essentially flat, right at you know right around fifty percent for for the year. Um, looking at uh, operating expenses ha- have stayed pretty lean this whole time. Uh, Q3 was at. Uh, 82.5 million. And I think this is a large aspect where they, they tend to stand out, you know, as a percentage of revenue, that's 31.6%. Uh, you know, and comparing it to some of the other companies we discussed, Cresco was at 40, Truly was at like 47, Cureleaf mm-hmm. was at 42. So that, you know, that 31.6% operating expense, uh, margin like really makes a difference and is behind a lot of the reason why you see, uh, actual operating cash flow come in um, so yeah turning turn to cash flow uh, q3 was was 48 million in ocF and uh, only a only a small a, a adjustment there uh, coming from uh, taxes so it was right around like 45 million in, in the quarter tax adjusted mm-hmm. um, and that you know that lands them at 88 million in ocF year-to-date uh, about 80000000 million tax-adjusted year-to-date. So, so by far uh, the leading operator across the entire industry in terms of actual true tax-adjusted operating cash flow year-to-date.
0: Yeah, and, and one thing I just want to point out, um, we, we pointed this out last time on Cresco, so I just want to make sure we, we get GTI for it too. If you look below the line at the financing section, there's something that says distribution to third-party unit holders. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this has to do with with I think old structures of of how some uh, old structuring of, of basically when equity was raised, people had these like these like uh, limited liability units, and uh, basically when they paid tax, they have to flow it through to those unit holders. So they paid like fourteen ish million. Uh, they paid about fourteen ish million um, in tax uh, for these for these uh, liability holders, and and that's over the year. So. If you take that off of your, you know, eighty-ish number, you get to about sixty-five. So, you know, you're you're just kind of uh, you're just above twenty million. Call it twenty-two million a quarter in uh, in true cash flow, right? And sorry, in operating cash flow. Now, that being said, they spent like hundred and sixty million so far this year between uh, capex and investing and whatnot, right? So, so. Still a huge use of of their money, right? And that's why you see from the start of the year you started at two hundred and thirty million. Now you're closer to one hundred and fifty million, right? And so, now that that's where we get into the conversation of going into next year, you're going to have a, a declining capex cycle. So you're going to be putting less money out the door for you know your property, plan equipment, and, and that kind of stuff, right? But what's interesting about their footprint, and I think impressive, is the fact that they've achieved these numbers. Despite the fact that you know you have Connecticut and Rhode Island that um, are just turning over now, right? So you're carrying opex of those bodies um, into you know turning into adult use. So other companies were were doing that as well for New Jersey. Then you saw that flip, right? So so now GTI is going to get that benefit uh, really, and you're starting to see it in Q1 of next year. Same thing with Virginia. Same thing with Minnesota. So that's kind of a cool tidbit when you look at this is that, Hey, there's a lot of runway here um, when you look forward kind of two or three years.
1: Yep. Yep. Agreed. Well said. Um, and yeah, they, they definitely had a, you know, uh, a lot of CapEx spend both in, in 20 and 2021. 20, uh 2022 is going to come in, you know, a little bit below the the 21 number. Um, and then, like you said, I think, I think next year, you know, perhaps they will land closer to, you know, a hundred million or so. So, uh, you know, roughly approaching kind of that cash neutral position in terms of actual free cash flow. So, you know, where, where your OCF is largely offsetting your CapEx payments. And, uh, you know, that's obviously a, a position you want to be in. So you're not dependent on, uh, you know, needing to bring in any a- outside capital and or, or putting on more debt. Um, and, and you, know, when, you know, I think when we turn to the balance sheet overall, it's a, you know, it's another high point of the the company relative to others is just, you know, they're, they've, you know, proven, uh, diligent and like not over leveraging the balance sheet. So the, yep. you know, their actual, uh, EBITDA margin is translating to cash flow in, in a meaningful way. So, you know, debt's pretty lean, 256 million, um, in, in actual debt relative to that, 147 million. And, and much of that is at you know, the pretty cheap 7% facility there, there was, uh, you know, warrants attached to it, but you know, now those warrants are actually way out of the money. So it, it's actually kind of uh, looking like a, a good deal back, back when they uh, did it. And then uh, they do have a, you know, a, a, like roughly another like 200, 250 million of, of lease liabilities. Um, but overall, when you're, you know, when you take all of that into consideration, then on top of that, they're essentially current in their income tax payable. You know, you're looking at total uh, debt and lease liabilities and you know general leverage of you know five hundred five fifty million and you know when you compare that to companies like a you know like a truly or a, a curely for Cresco who are putting up similar EBITDA numbers but have two times the amount of debt and lease liabilities that's why you're ultimately seeing that that translation from EBITDA to cash flow
0: yeah and I think that uh, lease liabilities to me is always a funny one because um you know, your, your lease liabilities are included, you know, your, your, your EBITDA includes your lease payments and, you know, unless you're, you're, you know, on IFRS, right? So, um, I, I, I've always disagreed with putting lease liabilities as debt, but, uh, you know, I'm not an accountant. Um, but, uh, so, so for all these companies, I don't really include lease liabilities. But, you know, just taking GTI's numbers, you have 237 million shares roughly, um, some warrants that are well out of the money. And uh, today's prices, let's say, are, let's say, between 11 and $12 US. That gets you to an equity value um, somewhere between $2.6 and $2.8. And then you add on $300 million, that's roughly $250 of debt, plus some contingent consideration, plus like $10 million of taxes. So you get just under $300. So you're all in. um EV number is something like 2.9 to 3.1. And then, you know, based on current EBITDA, you're in that 325 range. And then I think you look at it 325, 375 and 450 of all of these companies. I mean, GTI actually has maybe the best, if not, you know, close to, if not the best runway with, uh, with CT and Rhode Island and the potential for Minnesota. And at some point, Virginia, so I, I think you're kind of a little more comfortable on the middle end or higher end of the EBITDA range. So 375, 350, 375 for next year to me seems pretty doable. And uh that puts you in the ballpark of around eight times EBITDA at that at that 375 number. Now, if you're closer to the 325 number where you are today, that's so factoring in more compression, you're more like nine to ten times. So, you know. 8 on the low end let's say and 10 on the high end. Um so you know 8 to 10 is kind of the range roughly. Uh that's that's sort of in line um with you know a little more expensive than than actually maybe a decent amount more expensive than Cresco and Leaf, and still cheaper than Curaleaf. So that's kind of uh, a rough range. It it feels like in today's market with rates going up, you know 8 to 10 times EBITDA is not hugely attractive. Right. It's, it's not like it jumps off the page. Uh, but certainly, I think compared to peers, this is trading in a very reasonable price right now um, compared to, you know, where we saw Cura Leaf trading, for example.
1: Yeah. And, and I think, you know, with what we discussed regarding how that, you know, at least, you know, in the future, I think EBITDA tends to be, you know, most on other industries, EBITDA is a pretty good uh in, indicator of of profitability and you sure. know, how it translates, but obviously in cannabis, there's a big difference between EBITDA and cash flow like we yes. like we you know discussed so I think that that slight premium the EBITDA uh is also warranted just in terms of how that EBITDA is translated in cash flow relative to their peers and you know I think that's likely you know it's certainly not going to change next year uh just because you know those balance sheets, uh, advantages that that they have, like we discussed.
0: Yeah. So talking about some of the things GTI does really well, I, I think part of it is when you look at the company, right? And, and this is a good differentiator between the two of them. I think Verano is just a beast on the operational side. And when I say operations, I mean, you know, running dispensaries, running grows, managing a huge footprint. I, I actually think Verano has the edge over GTI in these areas. But then you have the corporate side of the business, right? Where, okay, you need to run the business, but now you need to, you know, run the, the corporation, the public company, and you need to report to shareholders and you need to, you know, um, uh, report your financials correctly, right? And certainly Verano's had, you know, really embarrassing struggles in some of these things. Now, part of that's because they've done a huge amount of M&A, right? And they're they're going through the growing pains of that. So that's understandable. But GTI just plays the game so exceptionally well. Here's a good example. Look at their numbers that, that Nick laid out from the revenue side, right? And, and Nick, do you want to just repeat those for Q1 to Q3 on the revenue side?
1: Um, yeah, so it was... Uh, let just bring it up real quick. Uh, two... Uh, sorry, I'm missing the... Uh,
0: 243, Q1, 254, Q2, 261, Q3. So it goes, so just say those, so say those so
1: back two, again. So 243, then 254, then 261.
0: Yeah. So, so you see that nice step up, right? Of, of like 10 million, then 8 million. One of the things I notice about GTI, I think, I think this is really like in their, in their blood when they're mapping out their year they want this nice, steady, smooth increase quarter over quarter. They're not trying to shoot the lights out. I think what they're doing is they're just looking, they're playing this game of beat the expectations and they're playing it really well. So they're, what they're doing is they're, ma- they're tempering analyst expectations, saying, listen, it's going to be flat next quarter, probably no growth, probably, you know, it's just a little, you know, it's going to be roughly the same, basically. There's not much coming online. And then they beat it by a couple million. Right, they beat it by two percent or something. Right, which that's at the end of the day, that's what gets investors excited. Right, it's it's kind of silly, um, but that's how the stock market works. And so, so they they are very even keeled about it, and I think they're very deliberate in how they turn on assets and maybe recognize, you know, some of their wholesale revenue, for example. And they're never trying to have a blowout quarter. I think they're always trying to just do a little bit better than expectations, and then temper expectations for the next quarter. And I think that's very intelligent. And it's the reason why they've been able to keep this up for so many quarters in a row. Now, if you look at Verano, you know, Verano goes back and forth, right? They have, they have a bad quarter and then they, you know, they hear, hear about it from the market and they go, okay, we're going to shoot the lights out this quarter. Then they have an enormous quarter, right? And the net effect of that is that even before all of these, you know, slip ups with accounting, um, people are more dubious on what's real and what's not real right? When people, investors looking at the business from afar, which is most investors, and most big money investors, they just, they want to see nice, steady, predictable results trending upwards. They don't want to see this lumpiness of, you know, we did 50% EBITDA margins in Q1, and then we did 30%. And then, you know, that they don't like that. They like to see predictability and more of a smooth ride, but ultimately going in the right direction. So that's one thing I have to give GTI huge compliments on. Now they've also been public a lot longer than Verano, right? So so you got to be fair there. But where we're sitting today, I think GTI is really earning that premium, um, even just in the way they manage that corporate public market side of their business.
1: Yeah, and what speaks to that well is this this past uh, in, in Q three, it was their fifteenth straight beat on consensus.
0: Right, you know? right, right, so, right.
1: So nearly four years of, uh, you know, like you said, I think it's a very intentional, like uh, downplay what they're going to do next quarter and then slightly overperform it.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, so that another way of saying that is that that's the 15th consecutive quarter of analysts being wrong. Right. But but probably, again, very deliberately, very intentionally talking them down, talking them down, which is fine, which is fine. It's, it's arguably what other companies should be doing. Tempering expectations, bringing them down a little bit, so you can overachieve and and leave everybody on a positive note.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and of course, I do think uh, you know, of course, when we when we're talking about GTI, we we should of course mention again that you know, if we're going to be critical of something, it's uh, you know, they obviously had this large board exit, and uh, in true GTI fashion, did not address it super transparently <laughs> in, in, to say the least in the quarterly call. And we never got exact clarity on the reason behind it other than that it wasn't, you know, financially related. Um, and, and, you know, that's certainly been one of our criticism in the past is that, you know, they tend to be uh, fairly uh, elusive in terms of responding to shareholder questions and, you know, the direction of the company. And, uh, you know, much of that has been, uh, to some extent, like offset just by consistent results, but you know, if we're going to point to uh, an area where we we want to see improvement, is uh, continued uh, shareholder transparency and uh, uh, corporate responsibility.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I mean, look, uh, that is the criticism of this company: is that from an IR perspective, uh, they they you know basically give the Heisman to investors right now. To their benefit, you know, I think they're winning a lot of this by default because the people who would kind of benefit from that and step in and supersede them, um, you know, like Verano are busy shooting themselves in their foot with uh, these constant financial restatements. So a lot of the mistakes that that GTI is making, um, you know, they're kind of getting a pass for just because they end up, you know, it gets overshadowed by all the other issues out there. And The funny thing is, you know, you want to talk about 3D chess. There have been a couple of really violent sell offs in GTI. The first one being when all of the board members resigned. um, And the second one being when they released the filing with regards to the board members resigning, you know, and the fact that uh, a little more additional information came out. Within, I don't know, 24 hours of those releases, 48 hours of those releases, we've had, you know, basically um, massive. Uh, news that you know brought in huge selling volume and not only helped the share price recover, but uh, you know recover and then some. So if you think about the first one, it was uh, the Biden rescheduling announcement. I believe that was the first. You know they announced that morning, and the rescheduling announcement came out later that day, right? So somehow I doubt that was a uh, a coincidence. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and so. Anyone who dumped the stock, who said, hey, I don't like Ben, I'm scared, who dumped the stock, you know, but 24 hours later, you were down like 30% on what you just sold. So, man, that had to hurt. And then the next week after that filing came out, I think like a day or two days later, the Circle K news drops, right? And the stock gets another leg up. So going back to that idea of of being, you know, playing that game of 3D chess, understanding capital markets. They're washing out people who maybe are dubious on the stock, making them feel stupid, rewarding people who bought the stock. Uh, Now I'm sure they might say that was a coincidence, right? But looking at it from afar, I kind of go, I'm not so sure. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, you want to incentivize and reward shareholders who are buying your stock and you want to punish people who are selling your stock. And I think they did exactly that.
1: Yep. Yep. All said.
0: Okay. Let's, uh, Let's compare it to um, Verano. So let's go through the Verano numbers if you don't mind.
1: Yep. So Verano uh, revenue Q1 was uh, 200 mil- $202 million. Uh, Q2, a big jump up uh, to $224. Uh, and then Q3, uh, a smaller jump to $228. Um, so, you know, obviously a lot of that driven by uh, New Jersey turning online where they have mm-hmm. a meaningful position. But like you spoke to earlier, they have been very active in. New store opening, seven new stores in Q2, uh, five Florida, one Pennsylvania, one Virginia, and then uh, 14 stores in Q3, 11 Florida, two West Virginia, one Pennsylvania. Um, and then they they closed the, the Sierra Well deal in, in Q3 as well, uh, which was two retail and a grow in Nevada. Um, and
0: now. I was – sorry, I was a little let down by the Q3 results This this is just my own you know reading of it, but you know they're they're very big in New Jersey. They're uh, you know a very large wholesaler. You know probably neck and neck with Curaleaf, and then they opened like you know a whole whack of new stores in Q two and Q three, and relatively marginal increase in revenue from Q two to Q three, right? So that was a bit of a head scratcher. Now, part of that, again, could be seasonality, Florida, Arizona. Part of that could just be you open a new store. It takes time to ramp it up. Um, but that was a little bit of a letdown to me, to be honest.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think in Florida, we could we obviously get the OMMU numbers coming in weekly. And uh, that was definitely a thing I noted, uh, even as there were, you know, they kind of were neck and neck with a and cure in terms of store numbers right around 50. And then they, you know, quickly jumped to the two spot. I think they have like 62 or 63 today, but oddly did not see that carry through to increased volume. Um, I will say that that has seemed to change last couple of weeks. And I think you mentioned that they did start to compete a little bit more on, on the discounting front. Um, and, and their numbers definitely have taken a, a step up where, you know, I think, Purely from a, a volume perspective, was was typically like almost always the number two operator, and now uh, Verano is, is is definitely neck and neck with them, and and perhaps you know likely selling at a higher price point. Um, so, yeah, so
0: so let's sorry, I'm glad you brought that up. So we did see them release their Savvy line. So Savvy is really a value line, and. Just kind of shows you where the market is, right? I mean, six months ago, twelve months ago, Verano was like, "Hey, we don't discount. You know, we're quality. We stick there," and and it's true, by the way, that a lot of their product. And you look at how the product has um, improved, even over the last couple months. I think these guys are doing a really good job, but the reality of this industry is it it gets commoditized and it's hard to compete. So they finally. You know, said okay, fine. We're going to do this value brand. We have excess inventory. We want to keep our sales up, and they rolled out savvy across basically all the markets, and uh, that's also true in in Florida. So, you know, that was the point I made last time around that you know Curaleaf has won by cutting price in Florida. Well, what do you do when Altmed says, yeah, you know what, we're going to compete too, and they compete a lot more strategically. So I think they're still getting a massive premium over what Curelief gets. Um, but you look at the sales numbers, and you know within a couple of weeks they basically caught up, right? So they're moving more product now, and you know this is now a headwind to Cureleaf's business, right? When when people can can buy um, higher quality product at similar-ish prices, you know what do you do? Do you cut pr- your own price again, right? Because that at a certain point that that starts having uh, diminishing benefits. So I think that's that is a big part of what you're seeing across this footprint um is just the fact that they have decided to to engage in the the discounting game as well and and that's where where savvy comes in and and that's i think it was an inevitable progression that was, that had to happen.
1: Yep, yep, agree there. Um and looking at uh continue with the the quarterly review uh turning towards margins uh definitely, you know, like you spoke to a, a lot choppier um than what we see with uh, a name like GTI but um You know, they do tend to have uh, quarters where there's significant improvement and then choppiness, another. So, Q1, 81 million adjusted EBITDA down to 75.5 million in Q2, and then back up to 82.1 million in in Q3. Um, And that that Q3 number is actually uh, pretty accurate. There's, you know, a decent amount of SB share based compensation Mm. around 10 million in Q3, but uh, essentially it was even a net negative. uh, on one-time adjustment. So that actually is uh, a pretty accurate figure. Um, and then on the gross margin line is where you see uh, definitely some up and down movement, 49% Q1, 44% Q2, and then way up to 54% Q3. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> some huge swings in that in that direction, but nice to see it uh, go up, you know, north of 40 and or north of 50 um, and back to, you know, what is a very strong level uh, relative to peers Um, from a a cost profile. You know, I think uh, other than GTI is a little bit ahead of them, they they tend to run, uh, you know, extremely lean um, from an operating expense portfolio. They did have a few quarters where it was elevated. Um, A lot of it was uh, appeared to be like uh, non-cash RSU uh, related. So um, it was elevated in Q2, but then in Q3, uh, dropped to eighty five point seven million uh, which is a 37 point seven percent operating expense margin so uh, other than GTI who is you know 31 percent Cresco is 40 cureleaf was low 40s truly was high 40s so them coming in at the, you know in the higher 30s is is a solid number from a operating profile um, one you know one interesting thing where uh, you know I think we can discuss in details looking at their operational cash flow. Sure. Um, you know, Q1 was uh, uh, let me see. Q1 was uh, fifty three point three million. Yeah. Uh, Q2 was negative nine point three, and then Q3 was uh, positive twenty one point seven. Um, mm-hmm. So year to date, that's sixty five point three million. So big swings. A lot of that has to do with tax payment timing. Um, and I know you've, you've dug into this more, but uh, especially in, in Q3, there was a, a large tax payment that came due. So tax adjusted OCF in Q3 was actually negative thirty-eight million, and then for the entire year was uh, essentially flat. So just, just you know, negative three hundred ninety thousand year to date. Uh,
0: yeah. So, adjusted. So, yeah. So let's dig into this because I I I think this kind of speaks to. You know, where the company really needs to improve. So, you know, you, the Q3 results come out. Um, you know, they, they were pretty good, I think, overall. Uh, great operational cash flow number showing that they they brought in about, you know, $21.5 million for the quarter. There was a, a line on income taxes payable, as in, you know, the, the taxes accrued for the quarter, $60 million. Now, that doesn't make any sense, right? That's a gigantic number, and um, I read through the ER. There was no information on it. I listened to the call. There was no information on it. None of the analysts asked. Now I, I do want to give a shout out to uh, Aaron Gray of AGP because I I messaged him and uh, he basically did reach out to the company and got an answer that the income tax line had something to do with. Going back to you know this deferred tax liability and and um, this methodology of how they value things and they have to put an income, uh, a, a future tax payable number on it. And so there was some kind of adjustment that had to be trued up in this quarter. Now, I understand about a third of that uh, on a good day. But this is kind of what I'm getting at is that this is exactly the kind of stuff that turns investors off. Look, it, it's part of it is just the reality of the sector and some of the nonsense that we have to deal with from an accounting perspective. But I think you should go out of your way to explain to people what this is, right? If, if, like, first of all, is this sixty five? I'm sorry, I think the the increase was sixty million this quarter. Is that sixty million a true? Like, are you going to have to pay that in the next twelve months, right? I mean, we shouldn't have to be forensic accountants here to try to figure this stuff out. So. It, the onus is on the companies you know when they put together these great earnings releases and do a call to spell out for us investors hey this was a big delta but this is why you shouldn't worry so much about this Delta right and and I think we've chatted before um, about how there's a de- deferred tax liability component um, on the balance sheet for Verano you know it, it's massive it's like 250 million or something like that I, I haven't heard clear direction from the company saying look, you know this is based on accounting methodology of acquisitions, and you know we're only going to have to pay X amount of this over five or ten years, right? And this is why you shouldn't worry about it. So, in absence of the company pointing these things out, you know, I guess what we have to just give them the benefit of the doubt, right? So, so that's part of the problem here is that there needs to be more communication because um, investors, especially in a down market, assume the worst, especially when. You're restating your financials and having accounting control issues. Investors are going to assume the worst. Uh, so that's part of why this stock has been so trampled on. Is that people have lost faith. And uh, you know, when when people get uncomfortable with fi- you know the reporting of the financial results, they don't know what to believe. And despite this company doing a lot of good things and uh, having very impressive operating results, I think that has been uh, very negative for investor sentiment.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think trying to understand the the health of a balance sheet is, you know, one of the primary things I always look at as an investor. And like you said, it's it's a fundamental challenge right now to kind of uh, understand where Verano's at cuz you know, when, when we look at it, uh cash positions getting pretty low, 76.4 million yeah. currently. And uh you know, I think from a, uh, a debt perspective, they're uh, you know they they did the big refinancing because uh, they were one of the few companies that uh, unfortunately had a uh, upcoming maturity and they had to address it in this uh, high rate environment and yep. that, that's no doubt kind of hurt them going forward when you know they probably could have had long term debt at you know seven or eight percent and now it's going to be uh, you know twelve to fifteen percent.
0: Um, yeah, painful and-, and and that's a that's you know on three hundred fifty million you've got a five ish. Let's say five to seven point swing on, uh, rates. I mean, that's huge. That's 15 to 20 million bucks uh, yeah. extra that you're, you're paying out for, for
2: no reason.
1: Yep, definitely. Um, so yeah, I mean, when you look at the toll level debt, uh, you know, 376 current, uh, 15, or sorry, 376 longer term, 15 current. So, uh, you know, just under 400 and then, you know, a credit to them, they've kept their lease, uh, their sale and backs to a minimum only, uh you know eight and a half current and then 71 long term so just under 80 million in lease liabilities total which is you know a fraction of all, it's, all it's, yeah basically
0: basically nothing i mean they've, yeah. they've been really disciplined about keeping their real estate in house
1: yeah so in terms of like total leverage that that you know the, the recent uh raise does hurt um but you know overall this isn't a ton of leverage on uh for a company of their size, especially relative to the other operators, but then it definitely turns towards that unknown, like, uh, you know, income tax payable is up to $222 million. Uh, Yeah, And that's, you know, and, and they, they've admitted that like, hey, we pay 6% on this, we look at this as another, you know, almost uh, debt type vehicle for us. And, and I'm not, you. I think you could argue that one of the, you know, owing the government money is certainly an interesting way to play debt, but uh, I think it does make sense on the surface. But then if you add in that $250 million in deferred income taxes, you know, whether long term they have to pay, you know, does 50% of that come due? Does uh, 75 does 25 that, you know, to what you were speaking of earlier, the unknown as to that number is a big question, you know, especially when you, you only have $76 million in cash on the current balance sheet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a problem. Let's, let's be clear, right? I mean, you've got 222 income tax payable um, and then you've got, you know, just under 400 of debt overall, which, which is more or less fine. Uh, But then you have that asterisk of 250, right? So that's, that's the complicated uh, part as well. And you don't have any clear communication on, on what that 250 actually means. So I I think all of that is, is not good. Um, And then to your point, and this is another another thing, you know, when we're talking about valuations, all, almost all of these companies are burning the money that they raised in 21. And, you know, they're getting under that $100 million mark. And that's a concern, right? So when you add up all of the outstanding debt of Verano, let's leave deferred income tax alone for a second. Um, I think that used to be called deferred tax liability, by the way. So now I'm kind of curious you know, on the change of verbiage as well. But uh, when you compare these, you know, you've got GTI that's got all in about 300 million of debt. You've got Verano that without the deferred tax liability has, you know, 400 plus 222. So about 620. So double the amount of debt. And in the environment that we're going into, or maybe already in, um, that's a problem. I think people are going to look very carefully on the balance sheet side to say, you know, where is your debt level, right? And Um, You know, then compare that to operating cash flow. And again, with regards to Q2, you have this gigantic, sorry, Q3, you have this gigantic increase in taxes that doesn't really make sense. um, That wasn't really explained. So I I think all of that kind of contributes to why is this stock trading where it's trading today? Which, you know, funny story, Nick, that's where, you know, you guys got in to, 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 Verano is a private company in, in late 2020 and probably never thought you'd be back here again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, crazy reflection of how much the market's changed. That was a you know, a home run to flat like pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, it's 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 really crazy to see. So let's go through the the share counts here. So Verano, I'm seeing about 332 million shares outstanding. Um now one interesting thing is that that we don't talk about is the amount of Um, M&A that this company did. I mean, they did a a massive, massive amount of M&A over 21 and continued through 22. So I had a uh, earnouts Excel sheet going that was kind of tracking um, where I expected earnouts to be. And then I got really concerned because when I opened it up, um, you know, they had all these earnouts that I had priced out at $12 a share. And now we're like $5 a share. And you're like, ooh, this could be really painful. Good news is, I took some time and went through all the outstanding earnouts. Um, almost all the earnouts have been paid in in 2022, so that does actually help explain what's going on. Because, I mean, there was like 300 million dollars worth of earnouts that were paid out um, in in the last couple quarters through a combination of stock and and um, cash, and uh, I think that's that's part of what's going on with regards to why the stock has been so weak. And and talking about people dumping shares, um, that's a part of the problem. That I think we've done a lot of the work on, right? Not to say it's over, but um, that's that's one positive I can think of. So now looking through it, there's um, Agronomed, um that has to be paid out. It's about twenty five million in Q four, uh, but other than that, it's it's mostly done. You know, there's there's maybe forty million in total, including Agronomed that has to be paid out in some combination of cash and stock. So what I've done is I've, I've taken the current um, share count and just rounded it up to uh, where are you here? I've rounded the current share count up to about 350 million, which is, you know, maybe a little higher than it should be um, and use that for the market cap calculations. But it's more or less in line. And so at $5 today, which we're a little bit below that, but at $5, you get to a market cap of about 1.75 billion. And then you add on, you know, um, three, six, $376 million of notes, another 222 of taxes. And then you put an asterisk next to this deferred tax liability. But I mean, until they explain to us otherwise why we shouldn't count it, let's include it. So you get about $850 million of debt, um, not including uh, lease payments, which I, I don't think you should include. So all in all, your full EV for Verano at... Um, if you if you do a range between 450 US and 550 US, you get between two four and two eight on the market cap range. So kind of in line with the combined Cresco company and and where Trulieve is today. Um, and then we come to you know the EBITDA numbers, right? I mean this this was a company where we were underwriting you know 450 five hundred million of EBITDA for this year, but uh, obviously margins have have come down pretty considerably. So. You know, what are your thoughts, Nick, on, on EBITDA and where to peg this company going forward?
1: Yeah. So, you know, obviously Q3, Q3 was 82 million, uh, you know, run rate then is 328, um, for, for the current year, Mm -hmm. uh, consensus I see right now is at 356 for next year. Um, you know, and, you know, I think that kind of discussion can always turn towards, uh, footprint. And, you know, I think we've always appreciated Verano um, for, you know, doing a good job of building out uh, the, the right states. Um, they'll, they'll similarly have a nice bump from uh, Connecticut. They mm-hmm. have two, two stores currently and then a, a, a pretty large grow. I think it's probably amongst the largest in the state. So should have some, you know, out, out of the gate, some nice benefit there. Um, Florida, I'm sure they'll continue to expand, but, you know, like we discussed that, you know, market is somewhat leveling off and we'll perhaps continue to see price compression. Um, Illinois, maybe some wholesale opportunities, but offset by new retail competition. Uh, Luckily, they're not, you know, they're not really exposed, uh, to my knowledge, to any uh, stores that have huge uh, Missouri uh, you know, representation. So I don't sure. think we'll take too hit, big of a hit in that regard. Uh, Maryland perhaps is a, a Q3, Q4 story for them this year. They're at the max in the state, four stores, one grow. Um, so I think that'll be a good opportunity. Um, but everywhere else in the footprint, uh, you know, New Jersey, uh, obviously uh, could be continued, I think, continued growth just as uh, new stores open up in the state. Sure. Um but then everything else should be mostly steady state Ohio. Perhaps they'll, they'll have a a decent opportunity on the grow side as new stores open there, but nothing too material. Um, They obviously canceled the goodness growth deal. Um, So no more Pennsylvania or sorry, no more New York or Minnesota to consider, um, Mm -hmm. which would, I think would have made it somewhat of an interesting story. And then, uh, you know, they they have West Virginia as well, but I don't think that's a material mover. Um, So all in all, you know, I think, you know, next year, do, do you get a, a little bit of growth, but, um, you know, how yeah, of the markets?
0: Yeah, I, I think one thing underappreciated in the story is that, uh, I mean, for, for everybody, but in Verano, you know, that CT Pharma deal, I think that, you know, we haven't seen the power of that yet, right? A pretty large facility they picked up there, you know, certainly paid a lot of money for it. Um, so that could end up, being a really nice driver. So if we're run rating 330 today, I think similar to other deals, I think we kind of look at it between, you know, 325, which maybe is a little conservative, and 375 to say that, hey, we, we you know, maybe we're in a place where staying the same is good. Maybe a little bit of growth is is possible, right? So you're getting a range there again. But if I do that, you know, between 325 and 375, um, between 450 and $5 a share, I'm getting between, you know, six and a half and eight times. Um, so so something again around that kind of seven ish times. Which, you know, again, it's it's sort of in line. Um, it's it's you know, when you compare that to where true leave is, you go, okay, well, you know, Verano's a little more diversified. Verano's got you know so, some of the um, some of these tailwinds on some states, that's nice. But it's just not—it's not really jumping off the page when you consider the fact that we need to see them clean up some of these things that are that are outstanding, right? And in, in comparison, um, for the for the kind of same EBITDA range for GTI, we were more like uh, eight to ten, so call it nine. So you know, Verano's trading at seven, GTI's trading at nine. You know, so so GTI's maybe thirty percent more expensive, but probably in line, right, with the lower debt count with um, the state's ahead with the just a cleaner balance sheet. Um, you probably like GTI more at 9 than Verano at 7.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would say like if, you know, it's probably the slightly more conservative option uh, when you compare the two, especially when they, you know, I think GTI footprint perhaps slightly edges out uh, Verano at least over the next year.
0: Well, I I think, you know, Virginia... Rhode Island and Minnesota alone. I mean, I think those three really help. Um, I Look, I actually think it was positive that Verano canceled the the goodness growth deal. Uh, I mean, they're complete, completely in the wrong. <laughs> they're definitely going to lose in court, but that'll take years and years and years. You know, you don't want to inherit other people's problems right now. New York is a problem. Uh, that That maybe speaks negatively also to the Cresco deal, by the way. But New York's a problem. And, um, you know, MA is really messy. You're inheriting just a lot of stuff like employees and people and just financial structures and corpse. And, um, you know, to go through all of that, just to get essentially Minnesota and then have to live with New York and have to sell off, you know, the extra Maryland asset. I actually think this is where Verano is going to shine is that the fact that they are gritty operators you know, I go back to the fact that um, I think George Arcos really is a special individual in the way he runs a company uh, from an operational standpoint. Uh, and and he gave an interview recently with Cowan, and I thought he I thought he did a great job, right? I think the more they get him out there, uh, he answers questions directly, and he's a no nonsense kind of guy. Um, and, and I think that bodes really well. I mean, I, I think, so to take the two sides of this, you know, you're getting a discount here. So if these guys get their stuff together and they figure their stuff out, um, then that discount can erode, right? If they can, if they can clean up some of this um, financial accounting issues that they've had, they can get this going in the right direction again. And that just takes time. You know, you have to fix it and you have to give people time to show that you've, you've done it correctly. Then the fact that you have this operational prowess, the fact that you have such a great footprint in Florida, um, these things could over time really be to your benefit, and and uh, reward the the shareholders, but on the flip side, as we stand here today, you know these are two of my largest holdings. Uh, but you look at this and you go, I think GTI deserves a premium, and um, and and Verano really needs to prove itself now to kind of work its way out of the penalty box with investors.
1: Yep, yep. No, I think that's a a good synopsis, and yeah, I mean, totally agree on the the canceling the uh, goodness growth deal. Cause you know, we kind of spoke to uh, challenges to the balance sheet and how mm-hmm. thin that, that cash profile is. And there's no doubt they would have to put money behind uh, the New York asset and, uh, and, and perhaps scaling the Minnesota asset to be ready for adult use. And, you know, it's just hard to find that on the balance sheet right now. So I think they have a, a good platform to work off of and, uh, You know, like everyone, I think optimizing cash flow, looking at twenty twenty three, and as the capex cycle comes to an end, will be will be key in kind of uh, uh, you know bringing stability to that balance sheet. Because obviously, in in this current market, and you know, I don't think next year looks any better. It's you know, your two choices are raising expensive debt or uh, raising equity at near all time low prices. So, yeah. Neither is a good option in the current market. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, perhaps they, they start uh, doing more sale and lease backs or mortgage debt or something like that. Um, well,
0: and and sorry to cut you off. That, that's exactly what I, I think the alternative is the mortgage debt piece of it for both of these companies. Um GTI had something buried in their statement that they got a, I think it was like a $30 million construction and term facility. And, um, at, at, uh, you know, what would be maybe high rates in the real estate world, but for cannabis world was low. And that was a mortgage facility. And similarly, Verano's carved out, I think up to like a hundred or 120 million that they can get in mortgage financing. So, um, those are kind of avenues that, that these companies are going to try to tap. Now, will they be successful? I don't know. We'll see. Right. But those are really interesting avenues that, um, like for Verano, for example, they really need to bolster the balance sheet, right? 70 five ish million of cash is not very positive, especially when you're carrying that much debt and that much taxes. So we really need to see, um, you know, some avenue of boosting capital um, before you start getting concerned here, because I mean, who wants to raise money at, you know, these prices, right? Uh, Hopefully nobody. But I think especially if safe doesn't go through in the next few weeks, you're going to see companies get out there and, and start to have to figure out some kind of ways to reinforce the balance sheet to try to make it into 2024, uh, because otherwise we got a lot of headwinds facing us down with price compression and capital markets and interest rates and macro environment. And if we don't have, you know, some unseen tailwind like getting Pennsylvania or, um, you know, getting safe banking or something like that, a lot of these companies are in a precarious financial position, and that really is not where you want to be.
1: Yeah, yeah, well said. And you know, I think it'll make for an interesting year or two ahead because you know all of the you know some of the challenges that we've outlined for even these big five companies, uh, you can multiply that by quite a, quite a large factor for all of the smaller companies, uh, let alone like mom and pop type shops. Yes. Um, so, looking if you're in a position of uh, balance sheet strength and uh, generating cash flow and uh, you know, being able to survive over these next uh, couple of years, there might be some extremely interesting uh, opportunities to to go after distressed assets or just to you know uh, take outsized market share while while other companies are struggling.
0: Well, to that point, as we come to the end here, right? Just just talking broadly about strategy, um, I think that if you look at a company, for example, like Kronos that uh, I haven't looked at in a very long time, but I think they have like 900 million US of cash on the balance sheet. And, you know, I mean, they started with a lot more and they've been, you know, slowly burning it. But you think about in today's world that we're living in, in the 23 markets, you know, especially if safe doesn't pass, I mean, Ultra could buy like half of the industry with 900 million US, right? So um, it becomes really interesting to see what's going to happen as we go into 23. Uh, maybe painful for investors if we don't get safe. But I'm curious also, Nick, like how you think about the cannabis sector, how you think about money allocated here, how you think about private investments? Like, is it even worth looking at a new private deal today if we're not getting safe and the the public equities are just trapped?
1: I mean, we, we certainly have strayed away from it um, just because, you know, I think new private deals generally are going to lack the scale and, you know, we'll have even a higher cost of of capital than right. th- these larger public operators. And, uh, you know, that's no doubt a sentiment we've heard echoed across the board. I mean, there's just there's, I mean, there's so little institutional money to begin with. And then when you add in the, the, the fact that uh, the the money that is out there is, you know, much more uh peculiar in terms of where they uh you know will put money into sure uh i think that just creates you know i think even looking at some of the sale and leaseback operators like i remember talking uh to some of the new lake guys and you know when you, before they would uh you know fund you know not any deal but uh you know a deal in like pennsylvania for example and nowadays you know they're very hesitant to do so um, you know i think that just speaks to the fact that it, it's 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 hard <laughs> to, to start a new business in this market right now um and i do think that'll make for an interesting dynamic going forward and you know ultimately i think we'll kind of slow down some of that price compression we, we we're seeing like it won't be instantaneous because a lot of that is coming from the 2020 and 2021 capex spend that we saw yeah' but looking out to 23 and 24 and 25. When you have far less capital coming into the business, that means a lot of these new states turning online will be even more undersupplied uh, than we've seen before.
0: Yeah. And I want to put an asterisk next to that. One of the problems that we've seen is that sometimes the math doesn't make sense in this industry. You're like, hey, there should be, you know, prices should be higher or supply should be more constrained. And a lot of times the answer is the illicit market. So you know you you depending on what market you're in if the illicit market is too strong then uh, it doesn't matter really what the legal operators are doing you know they could all shut down tomorrow um and uh, you'd still have a hard time competing just because there's too much illicit product floating around and obviously that depends on enforcement and you know are there illegal dispensaries there versus just you know um just just people kind of selling to each other in their backyard uh and, and so that's that's kind of a caveat that I say you know in theory Lower capex and the hardship of the industry should constrict supply, right? And that should, over time, result in stabilization and maybe increases in prices, and people coming to some level where life starts to make sense again. Um, but we haven't seen that in Canada, right? Canada. Now, to be fair, Canada had a egregious amount of capital poured in, and we're still working through all that excess. Um, but I, I think part of the reason why we haven't seen a rationalization and stabilization in Canada is that the illicit market is just too strong. It it has a very solid foothold and um, the legal operators have to compete with that because the consumers have options. So it's very much a game of people you know, doing volume, even if they're losing money and just trying to hang on. And uh, unfortunately, that is not a great position for these companies long term. It's totally unsustainable long term, both for the investors and the companies.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great
0: point. Okay, Nick, as we're coming to the end here, just any final thoughts you want to leave people with on maybe how they should be thinking about their cannabis portfolio going forward?
1: Um, I mean, yeah, I think you know, it, some of you know of the main topics we went over today. You know, I think just financial stability and balance sheet strength are, are are more important than ever. And, uh, you know, I would just keep a key eye eye on, you know, I think all of these companies, you know, big five and, you know, essentially all of the MSOs and across companies across the space and in other sectors, like look at, you know, what they're saying in these quarterly calls, you know, efforts towards increasing profitability and Mm -hmm. right-sizing operations and utilizing all that, like definitely pay close to attention, like how that is actually occurring on the ground. And ultimately, like we have to wait a few uh, like months, like you said, before Q1 comes out, but I'll, I'll be paying close attention to how these companies are following through on those efforts. Um, so, so, you know, laying off people, like, even though it's, it's terrible, like that, that is a you know meaningful effort they're making towards right-sizing operations. right sizing um, operations. So now we'll, we'll wait to see if, you know, that better operating leverage can actually carry through to the Financial stability, because you know, like we discussed, uh, cost of capital is at an all-time high, and institutional ownership is is extremely low. So, uh, true profitability and balancing strength are are the two things I'm looking out for.
0: Yeah, I think this environment is really going to uh, separate people who are more entrepreneurial and and nitty gritty and can survive versus uh, you know people who. Are still stuck in the days of of easy and cheap and free money, and I think the next point, you know the um, the financial performance of these companies has never been more important, uh, especially in a tighter capital markets, and especially if we don't get safe banking, then there's there's really a question mark on survivability for a lot of companies. So I think more than ever, it's really important to dig in deep and figure out what you own. And, uh, you know, make sure that something that that can survive without significant impairment. Um, and, and to Nick's point, too, it might be, you know, worthwhile also to look at what's going on in all of the markets. Right. And and, you know, when when tech has a big sell off and it's trading in line with some of these companies, um, you know, you, you got to think about your portfolio and concentrations, But uh, but listen, this has been a great conversation. Nick, I really appreciate you joining us Um, to everybody. Hope you have a great holiday season and a great new year. And we will see you in 2023. Until next time.